We're in Revelation chapter 19, and what we've been talking about over the last three Sundays is we've been talking about the greatest event in human history. And that's not just preacher talk. The reason that we entitled the last three weeks the greatest event in human history is because that's exactly what Revelation chapter 19 is all about. Because it is the time when the Lord God omnipotent not is going to reign, it's when He reigns on the earth. And what we began to see in this passage is that this event that we're talking about, that is the greatest event in human history, it is first of all the event to which all of the Word of God is pointing. All of God's Word is pointing to this event. We went through the Bible and we saw that. We saw also that this is the event for which all of God's people have been praying. Jesus taught us that the first request of prayer is for the kingdom. Well, when he told us to pray for it, that the kingdom was going to come whether we prayed for it or not. He was interested in allowing us to be able to be able to have a part in the kingdom that God was going to set up on this planet. And as we pray for it, the kingdom not only will come to this earth, but the kingdom, what? It comes where? It comes in us. We saw also that this is the event that Revelation 19 is talking about, the event to which all of God's church is preparing. We're preparing ourselves for this event. And then we saw also that this is the event for which all of God's hosts are praising. And that's what this whole passage is about. It is showing us the raptured church of Jesus Christ. As we leave this planet... We come into the presence of God and we're just this close to the second coming of Christ when God will come and reign on the earth. And what's taking place in heaven is there is this incredible rejoicing. In fact, this is the hallelujah chorus. Four times we say hallelujah or hallelujah, of course, is the the Hebrew transliteration of that, the the Greek transliteration of it uh, here in in Revelation 19 is Alleluia. It's the same exact word. What it is is praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. Praise the Lord. And four times as we see the Lord Jesus Christ taking up His throne, we are rejoicing beyond measure. And when we come to our passage this morning, we're in the midst of that praise that's going on because of this greatest event that is taking place, we come today to the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. And look with me at verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet, John said, to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And now, Lord, as we come to this incredible passage, we realize that because this is your wisdom, 
that our human eyes cannot see it. Because it is your wisdom, our human ears cannot hear it. Because it is your wisdom, our human minds cannot conceive of it. What you have taught us from 1 Corinthians 2 is that your truth must be revealed to us by your Spirit as we compare things spiritual with things spiritual. And Lord, as we seek to follow that command today of comparing Scripture with Scripture, we pray that the Spirit of God would reveal the truth of this book to us. And because of it, may we leave here today never to be the same. People who will be a part of, of this event and have the promise of that already, I pray that this might be used today to cause us to be better prepared for this time. Those that are here today that right now will not be a part of this marriage supper, but another supper that will take place at the end of this chapter, I pray that this would be the day that they would change destinations. Lord, we realize that only you have the ability to do that through the foolishness of preaching. But we're asking you to do that for your glory's sake today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at our outline. We're talking about the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb is come. And first of all, let's spend some time deciphering the wedding party. Deciphering the wedding party. Now, we're talking about party as in a group of people, okay? Not about the celebration thing, okay? We're going to try to figure out who's who in this, this thing. First of all, letter A, in the wedding party, of course, there is the bridegroom. And unlike most marriages that we know anything about, I mean, you know, most marriages in our culture, the focus of attention, the main attraction is the bridegroom. I mean, you know, he's just a necessary evil in this thing, man. Yeah, we're glad you could show up too, man. But that babe that turns the corner there in the back, man, that's the deal. It's the bride, you know. Probably the most famous wedding that probably has ever hit this planet would have been Prince Charles and Lady Di, right? Because the whole world watched that. Did I call him the right name? Okay. I am a little brain dead this morning. Some of you are looking at me funny like, oh, no, that's not his name. <laughs> but that's, you see how famous that wedding was? I can't even remember the dude's name. But it was, without a doubt, the most famous wedding because, man, this was the prince of England. But you know what? The dude wasn't Jack, was he? <laughs> I mean, you know, who's the guy with the big ears, you know? Uh, I mean, that's kind of the way that we looked at that whole wedding thing, man. I mean, we wanted to see the babe, the bride, man. And, and I mean, and she captured the world. But this wedding that we're talking about, the bride, though she is exalted by the bridegroom, listen, the main attraction is him because he's not just a prince this is the king of kings and the lord of lords and this is his marriage wow and he's referred to here in revelation chapter 19 and verse 7 as the lambs and i appreciate some of you that that caught that truth some of you forgot that if you catch it you're supposed to throw it back all right we're playing catch y'all okay so so send it back okay he's called 
the lamb. The lamb. Now, if you've been here for any length of time in this church, you, you would know this already, that the lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. You just start backing up in Scripture and you go back to the book of Exodus chapter 12 and check it out. In Exodus chapter 12, God's people are in bondage in Egypt. Egypt, of course, is a picture of the world. It's also a picture of, it's a picture of sin. So get it. The people of God are in bondage to their sin. And God wants to deliver them out of the bondage of their sin. And so what he does is he tells them to get a lamb, but not any lamb. If you check it out in Exodus chapter 12, get the lamb and make the lamb your lamb. And what they were to do is to shed the blood of that lamb. And what God did in Exodus chapter 12 is he delivered his people from the bondage of their sin through the blood of a lamb. And you know what? You kind of go through the Old Testament, and you know what? If you didn't know any better, you'd just be cruising along going, yeah, that's real cool, and yeah, God wants us to come back and visit that as the nation of Israel. Come and visit that through a feast every year so that they're reminded that they were delivered through the blood of a lamb, and then all of a sudden, John the Baptist is out there one day on the seaside there by the Jordan, and he looks up, and he looks at a man that is unlike any other man. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And what he did is he filled in all of that Old Testament to let us know that was all really just a picture. The God was going to deliver His people. He was going to deliver us from the bondage of our sin through the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can take the Bible and you can summarize, really, it's teaching through four statements that you find in the Word of God about a lamb. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, there's a question that is asked. And the question is this, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And listen, you're going to probably have a lot of questions that you ask in your lifetime. But one of the questions you need to make sure that you ask somewhere along the way is, where is the lamb? It's answered for us. Abraham, Isaac is the one that asked the question. It's answered for us in the very next verse in Genesis 22, 8, the next statement about a lamb. God, Abraham says, God, listen, will provide himself a lamb. And notice what he's, he did not say. God will provide a lamb for himself. He said, God will provide, say it, himself. A lamb. And what God was doing is saying, listen, when you get to the point in your life where you ask where the lamb is, you're going to find him revealed to you because God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, God in a human body, and he is beyond any shadow of a doubt, the lamb of God. And John said that in John chapter 1 and verse 29, that next statement about the lamb, he said, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Where is the lamb? God will provide himself a lamb. Behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then the next one is in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12. And what John does is he records the statement 
of every human being that has ever lived. He records the statement of every angel and every host of heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? God will provide Himself a Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. He says, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So listen, you couldn't miss who the Lamb was if you tried. God is just so clear about the Lamb. In fact, 29 times in the book of Revelation alone, you find the word Lamb. And check it out. 28 of the 29 times that the word Lamb is found, it's used in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the bridegroom is the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, is the the Lord Jesus Christ. And then next, of course, in the bridal party, letter B, is the bride, the one referred to in Revelation 19.7 here, is the Lamb's wife. And I know that the people that are part of this church know this already. Maybe some new believer and you don't quite fully understand this yet. But the most wonderful thing in all the world, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior this morning, the Lamb's wife, the bride in this ceremony, is you. It's me and you. Who it is is the church. The church. And this too is a theme that's worked rather consistently through the Bible. In the Old Testament, the church, and you hear you know, commentators and scholars that would say, you know, that the church is not found in the Old Testament. And, and that's not true. The church is not revealed in the Old Testament. It's there. It's just in a mystery form. The Bible talks about mysteries. And when it does, it's not talking about Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and, you know, all that kind of stuff. What it's talking about something that has been hidden, that has now been revealed. And listen, the church has been around all the way through the Bible and God has been working that theme. It's just when the people were in the Old Testament, they couldn't actually see it. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, comes along and he has the body of Christ vision revealed to him. He, he begins to understand because God makes the mystery known to Paul. He begins to understand who the church is. She is the body of Christ and something else. She is the bride of Christ. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And let's pick up reading together in verse 25. And we always try to go to a passage like this and, and try to set somewhat of a, a context. Uh, look back at verse 22. He says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then he comes to verse 25 and he says, Husbands, love your wives. And so, of course, the context here, don't miss it, the context here is teaching to wives, brides, teaching to husbands. And let's pick up in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, 
that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, you got to watch verse 32. This is incredible. He says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, now, don't miss this. What he's saying is, okay, now, all along I've been addressing husbands and their brides, husbands and wives. And he says, now listen, this is a great mystery. I'm revealing something to you right now. I've been talking about husbands and wives, but what I'm really doing right now is I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. There was a mystery. This was hidden in the past, but the church was going to be the bride of Christ. And he says, I've been talking to husbands and wives all along, but buddy, what I've been really talking to you about is this mystery of Christ and the church. And I love verse 33. Nevertheless, okay, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And you know what he's doing there? He's saying, okay, yeah, okay, I've been talking to you about Christ and the church. Nevertheless, hang on everything there. Husbands, you go back, and you learn all that you need to learn about how to deal with your wife. And wives, you go back, and you learn, and you apply everything that applies to you. In other words, he's saying, so don't come through all of this and say, well... <laughs> Whew, glad we don't have to do that, man, because that was really just, you know, uh, uh, he's just doing some teaching about the bride of Christ. No, he says, that's what this is really all about. But you apply everything that I just told you. Now, now let me just say this, this practically to you. In this passage, what God is doing is he's saying, Husbands, you are a picture of Christ in the relationship that you have with your bride, you're a picture of Christ. And ladies, you are a picture of the church. Now, you know what? Ladies, there could be, there isn't, but there could be some room for you to go, yeah, whatever, and maybe God wouldn't take it too personally, but let me just say this to you men. As you picture the Lord Jesus Christ, He takes it very personally when you don't carry out your responsibility to your wife the way He has lavished His love upon you. And that's why He comes along in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, and He says, listen up, husbands, if you don't honor your wife... You see, that's what Christ did for us. He says, if you don't honor your wife, he says, you know what will happen? Your prayers will be hindered. L listen to me, men. You can pray 23 hours and 59 stinking minutes a day. And if your relationship with your wife 
is not right. And in your relationship with your wife, if you are not picturing the love and the honor that the Lord Jesus Christ has lavished upon you, listen, you can save it. Because that 23 hours and 59 minutes of prayer, God says, I don't hear a word you're saying. Because, you know what you're doing? You're messing up the picture of Christ. So I'm saying, listen, you can mess up a lot of things in this world. Don't mess up the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is very serious about that thing. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to further show you this concept of the church being the bride of Christ. That's what we're, we're trying to decipher, the wedding party. We understand who the bridegroom is. It's the Lamb. Now we're looking at who the bride is. And, of course, she is us. And that's set forth for us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33 that we just looked at. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Watch this now. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And what he says to us is this. We have been espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have entered into an engagement with Him, but right now, we are considered the bride of Christ. He considers Himself the husband. We have entered into that kind of relationship, and what He says is this. What I want you to do, until this marriage is actually consummated, until we actually come together with Him, you see, we're, we're separated right now, if you haven't figured that out. Okay, at least in proximity. Okay, he lives in inside of us, and there is certainly a oneness that is there because of that. But what he says is, listen, as we await the consummation of the marriage, what he wants us to make sure that we do is that we make sure that we are a chaste virgin when we are presented to Christ. We saw this back in Ephesians chapter 5 just a couple of minutes ago. That what he wants to do is to present us to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. He wants us to remain virgins. He wants us to remain holy as we await the consummation of this marriage. But again, the point is, he is our husband we are the bride. And, and let me just quickly take you back to the Song of Solomon for just a second. I'm talking about the fact that the church, as the bride of Christ, was in the Old Testament. It just wasn't revealed. We can now, because of the revelation of the New Testament that we have, now we can go back and we can begin to understand and see some things that people prior to the revelation of the mystery of the church being revealed to Paul could have never seen. And if you know anything about the Bible, you really won't even need me to comment very much on some of the things that you're going to see here in the Song of Solomon. Because now what you've got here, okay, Solomon is the son of David. Okay? And you know his story. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he said, you know what? There wasn't a virtuous woman in the bunch. But he finally found the love of his life, and you know who she was? She was the Shulamite woman. 
She was a Gentile bride. So what you have in the Song of Solomon is the son of David finding the love of his life in a Gentile bride. And you see, once you begin to understand that, man, what an incredible, incredible love story that God tucked away back in the pages of of this book. Look at Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh. Does that strike any chords in you at all? He cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love. You get it? That's Revelation 4.1, y'all. Come up hither. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. You know what that is? That's Revelation 19, y'all. That's where we're moving in 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 our story. Verse 13, the fig tree putteth forth her green figs. Do you remember the disciples asked Jesus, now could you, could you kind of give us some sort of a, a time frame here? Could you let us know how we would know that maybe the end was coming? He said, when you see the fig tree beginning to bring forth its branches, you know you're real close. The fig tree, of course, is the nation of, the nation of Israel in 1948. She began to bring forth those leaves. Those branches began to come forth, and she will, the nation of Israel, will bear figs. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Isn't that incredible? Go over to chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 8. There are three score queens and... Four score concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. And that's the whole teaching of the book of Ephesians, is he has made us, the church, one. Jew, Gentile, bond, free, doesn't matter. What he did is he made us one. My undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bare her. The daughters saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines. And they praised her. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning? You know what we're looking for, y'all? We're praying, as we talked about, for the kingdom to come. You know what the kingdom is? It's the day of the Lord when... The Son of righteous, Mal- Righteousness, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, will rise on this planet and it will be the morning. You know what we're looking for today? N- not just the rapture of the church, man. We're looking for the morning. We're looking for the day when the Lord Jesus Christ sets up His throne on the earth and He rules and reigns on this planet and for the first time in 6,000 years, He begins to get the glory that He deserves. We're looking for the morning. Fair as the moon. <laughs> We have no light of our own. All we do is reflect the light of the sun, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. You know what it is? 
you got the church tucked away back there in the Old Testament. Did the people in the Old Testament know? You know, the Song of Solomon, the reason that this is sitting in our, our Bible, the reason it's here is because this is a picture of something that God is going to do in the future. No, they thought, wow, I don't know what that love story is all about. It's kind of funky in places, but... Uh, and you know what? You really couldn't understand it until Paul got the mystery revealed to him. And then you just go back through and pick your poison, man. It's everywhere. The church is found all through because the church is the bride of Christ. So the bridegroom is the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride is the church. It, of course, is us. Now, that's the, the wedding party as we see, or, uh, see it in Revelation chapter 19 and, and verse 7. Uh, as we look at some of the other verses this morning, there's some others that I'd like for you to decipher who they are. Uh, we're not going to take the time to, to cross-reference all of these right now. We'll see these as we move along today. But understand, there's other people that the Scripture talks about that are a part of this, this bridal party. First of all, the bridegroom's friends... And who they are, they are the Old Testament saints from Moses to John the Baptist. They are the Old Testament saints from Moses to John the Baptist. We're also going to see the bridesmaids, the virgins. We've already seen those in, in Song of Solomon here. The bridesmaids, the virgins, they are the tribulation Jewish saints. And, of course, in particular, the 144,000, Revelation 14.4, says that they are those who are undefiled with women, for they are, what? They are virgins, okay? And then some people that are not actually the wedding party that we're also going to see are people who are the guests at this, this wedding or this marriage supper. And those are the tribulation Gentile saints. And then the concubines that we'll see. These are people that are saved under grace before the law of the Old Testament. People from Adam up to Moses. So we would, I mean, people like Adam and Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all, all of those kinds of people are referred to as the concubines that will be a part of this, this marriage supper. So, okay, first of all, we've spent some time deciphering the wedding party. Now, number two, let's spend some time delineating the wedding procedure delineating the wedding procedure. Now, listen, if you're going to understand the significance of our marriage to the Lamb, it may just help you to begin to understand some things that the Bible would reveal about how weddings took place in this Middle Eastern culture in New Testament times. There's just some, some things that we can see that are laid out for us historically, and, and we find them obviously uh, also in the Word of God. First of all, letter A, there was three stages that, that we're going to see unfolded here uh, that were a part of this, uh, the, the way that a, a Jewish wedding would actually come about. There was three stages. First of all, letter A is the espousal or the engagement period. The espousal or the engagement period. And, and just a, a, a note, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1, Verses 18 and 19, do you remember what it says? Mary was, what's the word? Espoused to Joseph. In verse 19, it says Joseph was her, what? Her, her boyfriend, her, her husband, right? 
Imagine Joseph, a boyfriend, man. She, Mary was a spouse to Joseph, her husband. They were engaged, but now listen, in biblical times, that was already, that espousal period, it was already a binding relationship. In the engagement or the espousal period, they already took the title husband and wife, okay? Joseph was her husband, but during that espousal period, there was no physical intimacy. The marriage had not yet been consummated. Okay, that was something that would come later. And, and of course, that's why Mary, though she was a spouse to her husband, Joseph, remained a, a virgin, was able to give, bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, you know, back in those days, this, this relationship was was so binding, you know, like if you girls are engaged to a guy and you find out that he's cheating on you or something like that, you know, I mean, what you'll do is, you know, you go to the dude's house, he opens the door, you take your ring and you throw it at him, you know, and you walk away and it's done, you know. You, you, didn't, you didn't do that in the Jewish culture. You had to put away that person. The word put away is the word that we use that is called what? You had to divorce them. And that's why Joseph was willing to put her away privately. He was willing to, to divorce her without making a big to-do of this because he loved her and didn't want to embarrass her. But in order to get out of that binding relationship, there had to be a, a divorce. Okay, now there's some things that you need to know about this espousal period. Okay, that's just the first part of this wedding process or this wedding procedure, the espousal period. Now we're going to just talk about some of the things that would take place in this espousal period. First of all, you need to understand that it was an arranged union. It was an arranged union. You know, our concept of going about, you know, having a life's partner would be so foreign to these people in the New Testament because, you know, we do the whole dating gig and, you know, we kind of try this one out and we try that one out and we go, uh, nope, uh, uh, mm, not her, oh, no. You know, that's kind of the process we go through that we call dating. Hate to make it that, you know, yucky, but that's the way that the thing actually is. But in, in this culture, the fathers arranged the marriage. And I just got to tell you, I think they had something going on there, man. I'm, I'm all about that. Amen, parents? I think that we need to have a little revolution right here in the United States of America, and we need to pull this into our culture. And I, you know what? I have told my kids, okay, we don't live in biblical times and all that kind of stuff, but, but listen, before you get too far down the road, just let me be a part of that whole process because I know that I am an old geezer, but I'm just telling you. I've watched you your whole life, and I've watched people for quite a few years, and I think I might help you just a little bit here if you might listen to the old man. So it's kind of an arranged marriage thing that I'm actually doing. And some of you folks I would like to talk to because I'd love to see my daughter get hooked up with your young man, and I'd like my son to get hooked up with your young lady. But... <laughs> But you need to understand that it was an arranged union. Okay, number two, the dowry would be determined and paid to the bride's father. And at least on one hand, I'm all about that too. <laughs> there was a price that, that would have to be paid to, to the father in order to be able to take that girl's hand in marriage, and that would be determined, and that would be paid for. Okay, number three, the engagement would be formalized 
with the giving of a ring to seal the promise that a marriage was forthcoming. The engagement would be formalized with the giving of a ring to seal the promise that a marriage was forthcoming. Yeah, he paid the dowry, but kind of as that little that guarantee and just that 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 certain whatever it does to you girls when you put that ring on your finger it just says <laughs> you know where you get all giddy and all that deal you remember when you did act like that back when you loved him and all that <laughs> but but that ring was all it, it was it was just sealing the promise that the marriage was actually going to take place number 4 the groom, after this whole process, the dowry would be paid and the ring would be given. The groom would then leave to prepare a place for them to live with the promise of his return. Okay, He would go, in that culture, to his father's house and basically he'd put on an addition at the father's house for when they actually got married for them to live in. And so there was a period of time where they were separated from each other as he would go and he would begin to prepare this place that they would live and he would always give that as he gave that ring with the promise of his return. Then number five, the bride in the meantime would prepare her dress and she would make herself ready as she awaited the groom's return. Okay, he's going and he's building the house, okay? She's back home, and she's getting ready for when he comes, and she's just like we do. This, you know where we got all this wedding ceremony and stuff, y'all? It all comes from this Jewish culture. She's preparing her dress in the time when he's, he's gone away. She's making herself ready. What this time actually was was a time of purification for her. What she was supposed to do is hold on to her virginity, and there was the whole process with the oils and the creams and all of that whole deal and purifying herself. But one thing, the way that they did it in this culture, and it was just kind of the, almost the fun of the whole deal, is she didn't know when he was actually going to return. You know, he didn't call her up on the cell phone and, uh, hey, heading over. Uh, it w- wasn't like that. Didn't write her a letter. Didn't have the Pony Express going on back then either. She was to be ready at any time. So she's working on this dress. She's preparing herself, but she needs to be ready at any time. Okay. So that's the espousal period. Next is the wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony. What actually would happen here is the groom would return for his bride with the sound of a trumpet and the call of her name. And again, this is just part of the, the fun of the whole deal. In fact, you can see if we have time, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it, that as, as we go to the Scripture and you see the marriage thing, you remember the midnight cry comes as the, the, the wedding party, the bridegroom and his attendants have come to the house. And they come in the middle of the night. You know, it's just that whole element of surprise. You know, it, but it, he would, it would be heralded with a trumpet and then he would call her name, okay? And then, two, the bride would make her appearance. She'd come out of her house. She would make her appearance to her groom. I mean, she gets that dress all on. She comes out, and then he would escort her to the place that he had prepared. He would take her to the father's house and the, the place that was prepared specifically for her and, of course, her bridesmaids, 
they come out of the house as well, okay? She's wearing the dress, and they, they all come out, and they would be escorted to the marriage celebration by the friends of the bridegroom. So the bridegroom comes, he's got a trumpet, and, and he calls out to her name, and he's got his male attendants here, and here comes the bride, and she's got all of her attendants. She's got her virgins that come out. Now, you see, guys... We go to weddings all the time, and, you know, here comes, you know, the groom. You know, and he comes out here, and he's got, you know, all of his guys standing out here. And then here, here comes, here comes the, the bridesmaids, and they make their way down here. And then all of a sudden, bam, here comes the bride, and she's decked out in this incredible, incredible dress that is sparkling, White and she comes down to make her appearance to the groom. You know what? It's just that's the way that we do it in our culture. But all of that stuff came from somewhere, and this is where it came from. And then, of course, after the wedding ceremony, there would be the marriage supper. All the wedding party would be there. All the people that we talked about there in point number one, the guest would also be there. Okay? So we've gone from deciphering the wedding party. We tried to identify who all the characters are. Number two, we spent the time just now delineating the wedding procedure so we could understand what would really go on in a wedding in this culture. And now number three, developing the wedding pictures. We're going to develop the pictures here now, y'all. What you need to understand is that everything, and of course some of you I could tell by the look on your face, man, you were already, it, and it ticked me off, to be quite honest with you. You're getting ahead of me. You've already filled in all of, all of the gaps. But now listen, for some of you, listen, everything that we just talked about, it was all, it was all a picture. First of all, letter A. There's three stages in our marriage to the Lamb. First of all, there is the espousal or the engagement period. As we talked about from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. This is the stage that we're in right now, y'all. We, right now, are in a binding relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as our one husband. Okay, and listen. The only other time that the word espoused is found in the New Testament, you know where it's found? We've already talked about it. Mary was espoused to her husband. And you know what you've got back there in in Matthew chapter 1? What you have is an espoused bride. She is in a binding relationship with her husband, but the marriage has not yet been consummated. She has kept herself a chaste virgin, and in her virginity, she gives birth to the Son of God. One place that you find that in Scripture. One place. And God just wants to make sure that we make the connection from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2 that we've been espoused to him as our one husband with Mary. Check it out, Mary. Listen. Mary, listen. You have been espoused to your one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage has not yet been consummated. He wants you to remain a spiritual virgin until the marriage can be consummated. But in your virginity, you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to bring forth sons of God. 
in the womb of your life, in this period of time, in the espousal period, he wants us giving forth virgin births. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Listen, in right now, in this espousal period, as we await the consummation of the marriage, God wants us giving his word out, and all that believe become sons. It's a virgin birth. Because we've been espoused to our one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you begin to understand our being espoused to Christ as our one husband, what you begin to find out, first of all, number one, it was an arranged union. Do you understand that the Father had already set the wedding plans before the foundation of the world? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now remember, now now listen real carefully as you're turning, okay? Don't miss this now. The book of Ephesians is sitting in your Bible to reveal that the church is the body and the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the book is sitting in your Bible. Now don't lose that message when you begin to go into the actual teaching in this book. But what he says in verse 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You know what he's saying? Listen. God, before the foundation of the world, chose that the church would be the bride of Christ. We were chosen to be in Him. And that's the teaching of the book of Ephesians. That when you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, you were placed in Christ, and Christ was placed in you. And the thing that you got to understand is God chose that that would be the way that it was before the foundation of the world. In other words, God chose a bride. He said, now listen, we're going to go through some periods of time and some dispensations, but we're going to come to one that's called the church age. And those group of people will be unlike any other group of people that has ever lived before them and any group of people that will be in any dispensation after them. Those people will be in Christ. Those people will be the body of Christ. Those people will be the bride of Christ. And listen, our marriage to Him was an arranged union. Now, do not go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 and read in that God chose you as an individual to be in Him. And, you know, you were just kind of floating along and all of a sudden God just superseded everything, your will and everything else. And because in eternity past He was going, I like them and I don't like them and I'd like for them to go to heaven and them to go to hell. That's not what's going on. He chose the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, to be in Him not individuals for salvation. He made us in union with Him. It was arranged. Number two, the dowry was determined and paid to the Father. Now listen, the price that the groom had to pay to take this woman, the church, us, to be His bride, do you understand how monumental the price was Do you know what it cost him, y'all? It cost him his life. It cost him everything that he had because we were all sinners. And the price to purchase us was the life of the sinless life of, of Jesus Christ. 
In Matthew chapter 13, you've you got to go and you've got to see this, man. This is so incredible. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, look, look at verse 44. Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Now, according to the Bible, y'all, the field is the, the field is the world. And listen, what he's saying here is God looked down on this field called the world and he saw a treasure there. That treasure was people who would make up his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. Look at what it says. That which when a man hath found, and who is that man that found that treasure in that field, y'all? The God-man, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And watch what it says. He hideth. He hides what he found. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. You know what it says? Our life is hid with Christ. You know what he did? He took us as that treasure and placed us in him. We are hid with Christ. And for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Who was that joy that was set before him, y'all? It was us. We were that treasure. And for the joy of making us his own, and for the joy of being able to hide us in himself, he endured the cross. And on that cross, he sold all that he had. He sacrificed himself. Look at the next part of the verse. And buyeth that field. He, he, he bought us. First Corinthians chapter six and verse 20 says, for you are bought with a price. And Peter comes along in first Peter chapter one and verses 18 and 19 and said that we have not been redeemed from uh, with corruptible things as silver and gold, he goes on in verse 19 to say that we were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, listen to it, without blemish and without spot. So the dowry was paid. It cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. And He paid that to the Father so that we might be able to be His bride. Number three, the engagement was formalized the moment we were born again, and He sealed the promise of our marriage to Him with the Holy Spirit. The engagement was formalized the moment we were born again, and He sealed the promise of our marriage to Him with the Holy Spirit. And turn over again to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 12. He says, and again, the context is all about those of us that He's chosen to be in Him. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Okay, This is when we got saved. Listen now. In whom also, after that ye believed... Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. And you know what he's saying here? 
He chose us to be His bride. And the gospel went forth. We received that gospel. We were in a binding relationship with Him. And to seal the promise, the wedding ring that He gave to us was the wedding ring or the earnest, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And He's saying that Holy Spirit sealed the promise so that you know that there is a wedding that is forthcoming. Listen, you, the moment you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because you happened to be born in this period of time, you know what happened? When you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you were placed in Him. You're hid with Christ. And Christ was placed in you. And then you were sealed with the Spirit of promise. And that Spirit of promise is the absolute guarantee that God is going to follow through on everything that he said when he took you to be his espoused bride. You got the guarantee of the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you and that has sealed you. Number four, our groom has gone away preparing a place for us and has given us the promise of his return. And as you're writing it, you already know the verses, right? John 14, verses 1 through 3, listen. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Listen to it now. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, here comes the promise, y'all. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Just like in that New Testament wedding. We're separated from our Lord Jesus Christ right now. And right now, what He told us is He's gone to prepare a place for us, but He said, you can guarantee, and you got the Holy Spirit to be that guarantee. That's your wedding ring. That's your engagement ring. He says, listen, you got the guarantee. I'm going to return to take you to my Father's house, to the place that I have been preparing for you. Number five. we are presently preparing our wedding dress. And you know what? Most of you probably could have filled in all of this and you you, you knew all this before, most of you. This may be something that you missed from the book of Revelation. We're presently preparing our wedding dress and making ourselves ready as we await our groom's return. And once you've written that, go back over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, look at verse 7 again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, listen to it now, and His wife hath made herself ready... Watch verse 8 now. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now listen. Right now, we are in the purification process. Okay, Right now, in this espousal period, what we're doing, or what we're supposed to be doing, is making ourselves ready 
And according to what it says in verse 8, what we're doing is we're actually preparing our wedding garment. And I know that it's a little cheesy for us men, but what we're actually doing, men, is we're preparing our wedding dress. And again, if you want to know where we get, you know, the bride coming down in this fine linen outfit that is clean and white, it's from the Bible. That's where we get all of this symbolism. Right now, y'all, what we're doing, whether you realize it or not, what we're doing is we're preparing our wedding garments. And God wants them to be fine linen. He wants them to be clean and white. He tells us that the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, please hang on this. This is so key, y'all. Something that you need to understand about the garments that they wore in biblical times. There were basically two garments that they wore. There was an undergarment, if you will, an underrobe, if you will, that sometimes is referred to as an ephod, okay? It was the, the underdress that, that would be worn. And then there was an outer garment that came over the top of that. The Bible refers to it as a robe or a, a cloak, okay? Now, this undergarment that we wear as the bride of Christ, that undergarment, that which is worn on the inside, is the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness that Christ gives to us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that He, God, hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, listen, that we might be made the, what? Righteousness of God in Him. Okay, now listen. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, you have an internal righteousness. Your position in Christ is you have been made righteous. You wear those garments and they are all to do with the righteousness of Christ. However, what he is saying to us here is there is an outer garment that we are preparing for our wedding day to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not His righteousness. This garment is the outer garment. This is the garment that has to do with our righteousness. We array ourselves in righteousness by what we do to serve Him. You see, this is why, and it will connect the dots, y'all. This is why in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's where every Baptist wants to end the sentence. And we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus unto... Good, listen, the devil is the most incredible deceiver and liar that could be imagined. You know what he wants to do? First of all, he wants you to work your way into heaven because if you try to work your way into heaven, you go to, you go to hell. Okay, Because it's by grace that you receive the righteousness of Christ. But you see, then once you've received the righteousness of Christ, you know what he does to you as a good Baptist? He tells you, now you don't have to do anything because it was all of grace. And so Baptists sit on their blessed assurance all of their life and do nothing 
when God says you couldn't do anything to get it, but once you got it, you got it so that you could work the devil out of that thing, literally. And you know what you're doing with your work? You're making your dress, baby. You're making your dress. And that's why over in the book of Titus, he comes along and he says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 7, listen, we're justified, he says, by His grace. And you preach that, Titus. We're justified by His grace. And he says in the very next verse, verse 8, listen to it. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, Titus, thou affirm, listen to what he said, constantly, don't ever shut up about this, Titus, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. You couldn't work your way to the salvation that He gave you. You were justified by grace. But once you got that grace, what He said is He saved you so that you would work. And he says to Titus, to people that hold the position that I'm holding and proclaiming God's truth, he says, you affirm it constantly. If you believed in God, you need to be doing good works. And listen, that's not just, well, wouldn't that be nice? You're preparing your wedding dress with your works, with the righteousness of saints. Now listen, something you need to know about this whole thing that we've been talking about with these garments. You got your undergarments, okay? You got the outer garment. It's the righteousness of saints, okay? But what you need to know is that in the Bible, if you weren't wearing the outer garment, you were referred to as being naked. And everybody's a little... Computers going. Doot, 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 doot. Sounds like it makes for good preaching, makes for a good point, but where in the devil is it? Hey, how about in Isaiah chapter 20, verses 1 and 2? You know what? People trip all over this. People discount the Bible because of Isaiah 20, verses 1 and 2. Because you know what it says? That Isaiah went walking, preaching for three years, and as he walked, you know how he walked? Naked. And people go, there's no way in the world that the God of the Bible is holy, man. He's got one of his prophets out there, and for three solid years, he's out there with no clothes on. He's not wearing an outer coat. He simply had on the undergarment. Eh, It doesn't work for me just yet. Well, how about over in, in John chapter 21... In verse 7, Peter's already blown it big time. He's out there fishing, hadn't caught anything. He's denied the Lord. And you remember what happened? The Lord calls over and says, Hey, fellas, you catch anything? Love the answer. This is what, how they answered. No! All you fishermen understand that. It's been a rough night. No! Hey, well, why don't you throw the net on the other side? And at that point, Peter recognized the voice. It's the Lord. And so you know what it says that he did? He grabbed his fisher's coat because he was, he was naked. Now, haven't you just kind of freaked out about that going? 
I guess he really was backslidden. He's out there with no clothes on, fishing, man. What a perv, you know? <laughs> uh-uh. He had on the undergarments, and because he was out there working hard like crazy, he didn't have his fisher's coat on. Okay? Come along, Revelation chapter 3. Listen now. The Lord writes the letter to the Laodicean church, the seventh and final period of church history, the period of time that you and I are living, and He says, you know what? You know what your problem is? You think you got it all together, and you don't. He says, you say you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He says, but I look at you and you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know what? A lot of believers running around right now with the undergarments on, been saved, got the righteousness of Christ, but they're naked. And he says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, he says, now listen, when he appears, one thing you don't want to do, you don't want to have to be ashamed at his coming. You know what? A lot of Laodicean believers Got to be ashamed at his coming. Because you know what they're going to do? Going to turn the corner in that wedding ceremony, make the big fat appearance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying this to be funny. You're going to be wearing a slip. And we sit around sometimes and think, well, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this or not. I don't know if I want to continue on with these mission trips. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of effort. I don't know if I really want to exhaust myself in the field. You know what we're going to do, hon? We're just going to show up on Sunday. Whatever. Hey, girls, ladies, can you imagine the embarrassment? Here's the wedding, man. and Everybody's in their place, man. It's all there. You turn that corner, and you're in a slip. It's too late. We're presently preparing our wedding dress, making ourselves ready as we await our groom's return and then oh and just a note be ready at any time (laughs) well you know I, I think maybe after I get married and you know settle in a little bit I think I might get serious about this whole God thing this is the espousal period you better you better you better get busy right now because this is the time you need to be ready so that's the development of the pictures that have to do with the espousal period we're going to we're going to turn a corner here and we're going to we're going to get on with it but look at the the pictures of the wedding ceremony itself the wedding ceremony number 1 
our groom will return for us with the sound of a trumpet and the call of our name. And I know that you guys were already seeing this one coming. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Listen, when it comes to the wedding... When it comes to coming and getting that bride, it's you know it's not like you know the Lord is up in heaven going, you know, Gabe, would you do something for me? Why don't you go down and get the bride and bring them on? The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and a and a trumpet, just like in in that culture in, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter four and verse one. John, a picture of the raptured church. John hears. A voice, he said, as it were of a trumpet, which said, Come up hither! Come away, my beloved! Number two, we will make our appearance to our groom. We will make our appearance to our groom as we meet him in the clouds, and he escorts us to the place he has prepared for us. 1 Thessalonians 4 goes on in verse 17 to say that we will meet the Lord in the clouds. He shall descend... He'll call us up or call us out, as it were, and He will escort us into the place that He has prepared for us at His Father's house. And it, the passage in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, as we're developing the pictures, we see the espousal period, the wedding ceremony, then letter C, the marriage supper. See, following the, the wedding ceremony is the marriage supper. And this is Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 9. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Okay, now, now listen. There's going to be a marriage supper. Now the ceremony takes place in heaven. It appears that the, the marriage supper is something that actually takes place on the earth. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. Matthew 26, verse 29. We don't have the time to go, just listen. The context is the Last Supper. And Jesus says, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom when he comes and he sets up his throne on the earth. So it appears that the marriage supper will actually be on the earth, and all the wedding party will be there. And number two, the guest will also be there. And for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to take you to, to the references. Just jot down a few, would you? You can look this up later for those of you that's still interested. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 to 14. Luke 14, 16 to 24. Luke 14, 16 to 24. And Psalm 45, verses 6 through 15. Okay, now, now listen, we don't have time to go to those, but there's one final thing that I want to make sure that you get. Okay, now, now listen. In, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus said, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than who? Than John the Baptist. And then he follows that up with, Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven, that's the millennium, 
is greater than he. And I want you to see what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3. Now, now Jesus has just told you the significance of this guy. Listen to what he said. There's never been a greater born of women than John the Baptist. Okay? Now check out what John has to say. In John chapter 3, in verse 28, John wants to make sure that everybody understands that he's not the Christ, that he's just the forerunner. Look at verse 29. He says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom, y'all? Christ. Okay. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, okay, those are the, the attendants, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And you know what John is saying? I realize I'm not the bride and I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just one of the attendants. I'm just one of the friends of the bridegroom. But man, I love to hear him talk. I love to see the love relationship that he has with his bride. That's, man, he says, that's, that's my joy. And what I want you to see here, y'all, this is so incredible. There's not been a greater than John the Baptist. And he doesn't have the position that we have. He's not even the bride. Does that mean we're better than him? <laughs> Give me a break. We just happen to be born in the right place, right period of time. God in His grace allowed somebody to give us the gospel. We heard it and we called on His name and goodness, man, we didn't even understand how we fit into the whole big scheme of things, man, but we have been made the bride of Christ. Do you understand the significance of who you are. Oh my goodness, y'all. To whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And I hope today we're all walking out of here with a different understanding about who we are and a different understanding about what we're doing. We're preparing our garments for our wedding day. Incredible. John is taking all of this in, man. And I mean, he gets so excited about it. Okay, the angel showing him all of this. And look at verse 10. Oh, no wonder it's not in verse 10. I'm in John 3. In John 19.10, or Revelation 19.10. Okay, now listen. John says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And guys, if you want to know whether or not the Bible is the Word of God, it's great proof text right here. Because I'm just telling you, if there's a verse that John doesn't want in the book of Revelation, it's this one. Because he has blown it big time right here. You worship one person, one person only, God. 
You don't worship your church. You don't worship your doctrine. You don't worship your sacraments. You don't worship your pastor. You worship God. And, And look at what he says. I blew it, man. I fell on his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's in the original. (laughs) See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. (laughs) Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friday night, we had our little... Uh, vacation Bible school thing, and I had the opportunity of giving my testimony. I love to tell that story. You know what? Jesus has a testimony too. It's the spirit of prophecy. You know what all of that prophecy is about? Him. Prophecy's pointing to his first coming, and then three times as many pointing to his second coming, the greatest event in all of human history. He says, the testimony of Jesus, spirit of prophecy. All of the foretelling was about this. And yet, listen, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you do? You receive the testimony of Jesus. And you know what the testimony of Jesus is? It's the spirit of prophecy. You know what? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ here, you have the ability to foretell the future. Don't you? Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you know what? You have received the promise of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've received the promise that you are his bride. It's been sealed with the spirit of promise. And you have been promised that you will spend forever with him. You you know what that is? You're foretelling the future, man. Spirit of prophecy. And there's people that are in this room today. And you don't have the testimony of Jesus. You could not say, now listen, you could not say today, I know, I know, I'll spend eternity with him because I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now listen, if you don't have the testimony of Jesus today, wow, do you understand what he's allowing you to be a part of? You are separated from him because of your sin. And yet he loves you and he wants you to be his bride and spend eternity with him. And now what will you do with it? He invites you. He bids you to come. And what will you do?